So we are in Revelation 22. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 tonight, which is the, inclu- the conclusion of everything that we've been seeing in chapter 21, right? This illustration of the new heavens and the new earth, as well as the redeemed bride of Christ. That is all of His people. Every person who has been chosen by grace, redeemed by Christ, sanctified and glorified by the Spirit, they, are, they now dwell forever in the presence of their God and the Lamb. And the, the, the depiction of their perfection was seen through the dimensions of a city, a new Jerusalem, where God and the Lamb have taken up residence. We saw the beauty of the city, the glory of the city, the glorified bride of Christ. And tonight we, we look at the, the, the place, the final picture of the great reversal that has happened in the Bible. Paradise lost back in Genesis 3 is now paradise restored forever, never to be lost again. As the final vision given to John is a picture of a new and a greater Eden. So let's read it together. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What of the Lord? Thanks be to God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And for six days of creation, He perfectly formed and fashioned by the very word of His mouth, speaking all of creation into existence. His final creation, His pinnacle creation, was a creation which He formed from dust and breathed His Spirit upon, and He called Him Adam, man. Formed and fashioned Him in the image of God. And on the seventh day He rested. It was very good. We see that from that man, He gave him dominion over all of His creation. He was to work and to keep the garden and to expand that Edenic paradise over all creation through working and keeping and the faithfulness of His generations that would follow. In order to establish those generations, the Lord saw fit to give the man a helpmate. And he did so by causing a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And then from a, the rib of his side, he formed and fashioned a perfect and a suitable helper. One who alone could be exactly what he needed. 
her to be. And together they would dwell, being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth full of image bearers, expanding the garden over all of creation. And through faithful obedience, they would be able to be partakers of the tree of life, them and all of their posterity. Yet they were given one single command. In the midst of the garden, the Lord had planted true trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of all of the garden, He gave them every fruit, every vegetable, everything that they could desire to eat and have their eyes set upon. It was theirs to have. But they had one command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat, you shall surely die. And that was the only thing that God kept from them. But it was not keeping anything from them other than the reminder. Yes, you are man. And you have been given dominion. But you are not God. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the one thing that would forever remind man that we still owe service to our Creator. He alone gets the worship. He alone gets the glory. He alone gets the praise. But a wicked serpent, one who had already rebelled from the the hallways of glory in pride, seeking to exalt himself to the throne of glory, was cast down in anger and in frustration. He sought to undermine the very pinnacle of God's creation in man. And so through the embodiment of a serpent, He spoke through the serpent in a way that sought to deceive the woman. To tell her, to lie to her, to deceive her that God's Word was not really everything He said it to be. That she would not surely die. That the reason that God would not want her is because He would not want her to become a God. And she saw the fruit and it began to fulfill the lust of the eyes and the passions of the flesh. And desiring to be God just like the deceiver who sought to lure her away, she partook. But then there was Adam, the one who God had given dominion with, the one who God had made a covenant with over all mankind, who could have redeemed his bride, who could have slayed the serpent. But rather than doing so, the first man fell and partook as well. And upon partaking it, their eyes were opened and immediately the ground and everything around them, God comes and and they are aware of the fact that sin has entered into it. That ability to know only God has now been corrupted so that now they know shame and wickedness and sorrow. The, The flesh which God created for good is no longer an object of His glory, but now it is an object of shame. And God comes down and He curses that serpent and He tells him, that the seed of the woman will crush his head one day. Forever this gospel promise of hope that one day that great deceiver will be crushed begins to now permeate the people of God. But for the woman and the man, they are cast out from the garden. And an angel with a flaming sword is placed there, picturing the holiness of God, the purity and power of God, to ensure that they cannot come back in to partake of the tree of life. They are now cut off. They now know death. 
spiritual death, which is separation from God. But it is not just spiritual death. For they would begin to be fruitful and multiply outside the garden. And within their first set, the first generation, Cain and Abel, they would come to know the reality of what spiritual death brings, what sin brings and the wages of sin is death. As their son Cain, in anger and pride, would kill his brother Abel. And from there, God still being faithful in the midst of this all, having clothed Adam and Eve, having given them a promise of hope, continued to maintain his promise of hope. Even though he makes Cain an outcast, he gives them another son, Seth, which he establishes a righteous line through. Yet even in the midst of that, as man begins to, to procreate and fill the earth, wickedness permeates it. Men begin to become tyrants. There is wickedness and idolatry and immorality. And it permeates all of humanity with the exception of one whom God chooses to, to abstain for Himself in Noah and his family. And God brings a worldwide flood by which He destroys all of creation except for the one. The one man in his family whom through his faithfulness are preserved in an ark which they are kept from the wrath of God. God faithfully keeps them and upon the earth being dried up, God comes to Noah and He establishes a covenant. He established an Adamic covenant, now a Noahic covenant. A covenant which is marked by a sign we still see today in the rainbow. That He would no longer perpetually flood the earth to bring destruction all at a single go. That He would provide immense common grace to man. And that things would stay as they were until heaven and earth would pass away. God tells Noah and recommissions him to be fruitful and multiply. And he does that through three sons, Japheth, Shem, and Ham. From that, once again, God will begin to establish the table of the nations. And yet amongst these nations, they now rebel once again. Though God had eradicated evil men, evil has still existed. Sin had not been eradicated. Man began to accumulate together and the desire was to build a tower to heaven. One, to make a name for ourselves. They did this once again to try to establish and to take the throne from God. We will get to heaven on our own terms was the mindset of men. And God said, comes down in that inter-Trinitarian language and He says, look at what they've done. Now there is no stopping to what they are capable of doing. Now that is not talking about how awesome men are. What that text is talking about, what there is no limit to what they can now do, was the reality of their rebellion. There was nothing that could limit their rebellion. So when God confounds their language and confuses that they are at Babel and scatters them across the earth, that was not just judgment, it was grace. Because it was common grace to spread them out and to confuse their language so that they could not go to the pinnacle of what their rebellion could have been. And in the midst of these wicked nations, God once again in His sovereign grace chooses a man, a moon-worshipping pagan out of Ur of the Chaldeans named Abram. And from there He would establish a covenant with Abram. A covenant of promise that through Abraham would come an offspring by which all the nations would be blessed. 
And that offspring would flow through an ethnic lineage, but then be a blessing to all those nations that were now dispersed across the globe. God would establish this nation through the patriarchs and through their sons, and this nation would become Israel. This nation was faithful, but oftentimes in rebellion against their God, wrestling with God, just like their father Jacob. This nation would be taken captivity, taken captive in Egypt, where they would be kept for 400 years, to where the Pharaoh there would eventually enslave them and treat them brutally. And yet, all of this was for God to set the stage for his glory over Egypt. His glory over man as He would bring an exodus, a great deliverance out from there. He would deliver them out of bondage so that they could worship Him. And He does that by through Moses. Through Moses, He brings Israel out of Egypt. And there, they immediately go into rebellion. And they are left wandering for 40 years because of their wickedness and their rebellion against God. So much so that even, unfortunately, Moses himself, in a moment of anger and frustration, would rebel against God's commands. But God would establish a covenant with Moses. A covenant which would provide the regulations for how Israel was to live as a light to the world. And yet they showed themselves over and over again that they were unable to keep the law. This sin was just too powerful for man to overcome. Israel would eventually get into the promised land because God was faithful through a Joshua, a Yeshua, a Savior. And yet even there, they would begin to go after the other nations. Through their judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Constantly wicked. Then they looked to the nations and said, we want a king like everyone else. So they looked, like, they looked for the man that looked like a king. Tall, strong, handsome, Saul. Rather than seeking after God as their king just like they would reject Jesus as their king, that was merely a reflection of what Israel had always done. Reject God as their king. They would get a king and God, once again in faith, would establish a throne of Israel which would last forever. And this would come through a covenant with David. The final covenant made with Israel. That a son of David would sit upon the throne forever over God's people. And so now we see the old covenant fully established over Israel. God is going to send a son of Abraham who is going to be a greater prophet than Moses who is going to be a king of kings and lord of lords to reign forever and the silhouette has been painted. Yet Israel will continue in its wickedness and its kings will follow suit. Solomon, David's son, would fall short in his own sin and after his, because of his wickedness, his sons would divide the kingdom of Israel into two. Northern Israel and Judah, the southern kingdom. Both of those nations would continue to go after wicked kings and the northern kingdom would go first as they were swept away in 722 to Assyrian captivity. People of God in exile. About 140 years later in 586 BC, the southern kingdom would follow same suit, rebellion, and they would be swept away by Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. They would remain in Babylonian captivity where God would be faithful to raise up prophets to call them to repentance. Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. 
to call them back to repentance, to call them to turn back to their God. And God being faithful to every one of His covenant promises restores Israel through Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Obadiah. And He restores them back to a nation. Yet they would still remain a vassal state because of their wickedness. And after the final prophet Malachi spoke, of a promise of one who was going to come like a refining fire, the Messiah to come, which all of the prophets told about this, this Messiah, this suffering servant who will come in the name of David, who will come as the Son of God, who will come as the suffering servant to redeem His people forever into an eternal promised land was the promises which Israel would hold on to for 400 years. And after 400 years of darkness, a high priest named Zechariah would stand in the temple of God like he had probably done and so many others before him had done, maybe expecting nothing at all, and an angel would come to him and tell him that he would be having a child. Though his, him and his wife had been barren, he would have a child, and his child would be the promised forerunner of the Messiah. And that very angel would come just a period, short period later to a young virgin woman named Mary and tell her that she would be betrothed overshadowed by the Holy Spirit by which she would dwell within her the, the Savior of Israel, the very Son of God, and His name would be Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And that child would be raised and He would never once sin. His name was Jesus, raised in absolute poverty. He was a man of sorrows in every way. Yet He was fully God, fully man. The eternal Son of God. He lived a perfect life fulfilling every law to its absolute perfection. He was the greater Israel. He was the fullest revelation of God to humanity. He was the greater prophet than Moses. And through His perfect life and sacrificial death, He would be a greater Joshua. Leading His people ever to an eternal kingdom where he would be a greater David and he would reign forever over them as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He would then take a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation by which he did through the proclamation of, his, of the gospel which would happen through his body. Those who he by grace sovereignly purchased by his blood for himself for the purpose of expanding his kingdom to gather every one of his lost sheep given to him by the Father and he will be perfect in doing so. And when the fullness of His people has come, He will then send a strong delusion which will take the rest of the rebelling nations to turn them against His bride. And when it looks as if all hope is gone, this will be once again the stage. Just like He hardened Pharaoh's heart, He will harden the hearts of the world. And just like it was with Pharaoh, He will come in immense power and glory and bring ultimate collapse around the system and throw it down in utter and complete judgment and redeem His people once and for all forever. And they will be purified and glorified. And what we read tonight is where they will dwell forever. In perfect peace and restoration. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of redemption. And Jesus is the center of it all. He's the center of it all. And so what was lost in the beginning is now what we see tonight restored. But even better than the beginning. 
So with that picture of this greater Eden and what Jesus has done as we think through all of that redemptive history, this is the final vision of the Bible. And what an amazing one it is. It's meant to be because it's meant to demonstrate everything God promised has come to pass. There won't be a single promise He doesn't check. And His people will dwell forever in safety. Forever with Him. And it will never be lost again. So let's look at this paradise restored together. In light of that incredible reminder of the story of Scripture. Of the story of redemption and what God has done for us. The first thing we see about this paradise restored is that it is the place of eternal life. We see this in verse 1 and 2. It says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. The river of the water of life. This is the picture of the constant nourishment, this purifying source that constantly feeds the people of God forever. There is never a famine, never a dryness, never a a removal of this constant life-giving refreshment that forever douses the people of God, that forever waters us forever. There will be no such thing as I'm feeling dry spiritually in glory. Forever led beside steel waters. This is the great shepherd of what he's done. Psalm 23. This beautiful power river. And notice here some fascinating things. We see the river's appearance. It is bright as crystal. Flowing where? From the throne of God. So we see the appearance. It's bright and clear. Showing its purity. It is a pure um, source. There is nothing about it that is tainted. We can drink from it constantly. Only to receive life and nourishment. And its source is the throne of God. This is how we know that this is symbolic language. The source of this river is flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now that's important. Notice there's only one throne and yet two persons are mentioned. Well, it's pretty clear why, right? The throne of God is shared by all three persons. All three persons sit upon the throne of God. Three persons, one being, all made up of of God. And it is from God and and the Lord by which all blessings flow from. We sing this in the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. All grace flows from the throne of God. All of it. And that's the picture. This blessing flows from the throne of God, sustaining God's people forever. And it goes right through the middle of the city. Literally right through the middle of God's people. Now, what is this river of life? Well, let's look at some text, right? So once again, this is just like Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, there is a river that flows out of Eden that then waters the rest of the earth. Right? 
In Ezekiel 47, verse 1 through 12, which is really this picture that we get the final revelation of, we are told this, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, and the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. And so, and Ezekiel's temple vision from the temple is flowing out this river that is giving blessing to the land. Literally, in Ezekiel's vision, it's bringing such a pure source of water that it says all of the fish thrive there. Where are the fish? Right? We see Jesus even appealing to that. You will be catching men from now on, right? And so Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 47 is now being brought to its fruition. And rather than a literal physical temple, the temple is God and the Lamb. We saw that last week. And all of this is flowing from Him. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 8 says, On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. That's us. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. In other words, it fills all of the source of God's uh, of water and provision, and it never stops flowing. It never freezes. It never dams. This water is a constant flowing life source. But what is this river of life? Well, Jesus spoke on it a couple of times. If you remember the woman at the well, the Samarian woman, this is what Jesus had to say to her. John chapter 4, verse 19, 14. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink from me? I'm a woman of Samaria. For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where, did you, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Yes. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. For the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. When you drink the water that I give, it will be a spring of water in you producing eternal life. And where do we find the location of this river? Right in the middle. In you. It's our heart. And forever, the life-giving water of the Lord is pouring through us. Forever. This, this being, this inner being of us is forever satisfied in glory. It is a constant. You, there's no turning the tap off of the immensity of life which is flowing through us in glory. And what is the essence of the water of life? It's the Holy Spirit. John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What is Jesus saying? 
is the rivers of living water which flows through us? It's the Holy Spirit. And we will have such an immensity of the Spirit of God pouring through us in glory, in this perfect paradise forever, that we will never know what it is to be quenched of Him again. We will never know what it is not to have this absolute, constant Niagara Falls of righteousness flooding our being day and night. Oh, I can't imagine. I I can't imagine the river of water that is constantly nourishing my soul in every way, constantly satisfied, never knowing drought, never knowing what it feels like to go through those spiritual famines where you just feel like God is distant, never knowing it, but constantly day and night reverberating with the Holy Spirit, flowing through you in such a way that every thought, every word, every action is filtered by the immense pure water of the Holy Spirit. Every part of you, inward and out, is fully baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit. And this is what our baptism is foreshadowing. This is why we do baptism by immersion. Because it is a foreshadow that the entirety of who we are will forever be nourished by the life-giving waters of Christ, which is the Spirit of God, who will forever dwell within us and upon us in the paradise to come. So when we get fully baptized in water, buried with Christ and raised down with life, that full immersion of the water is symbolic of the way we will be forever immersed in the rivers of living water in the glory to come. There won't be a single part of us untouched and and not constantly flooded by the glory and power of the Holy Spirit in the paradise to come. And this is the basis of our eternal life because that eternal life source is just pumping through us constantly. It is flowing through us at all times. It's not like we got to go over and and drink it ourselves or we're not doing good. We're going to be drowning. No. No one will be reminded why. Because the river is literally being pumped through you, which is the Holy Spirit. You won't need to be reminded to drink. That's all you'll do is drink. You'll drink in the glories of the living God, day and night. Oh, how wonderful. This is why it is the place of eternal life. But not only that, it is the place of eternal blessing. Because look at what is on both sides of this river. It says on the either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now this is fascinating. Here you have the tree of life. Like I said, first mentioned in Genesis chapter 2 verse 9, which was cut off from the people of God. After they fail in sin, they were separated from being able to partake of it. Here we are told day like they are always able to partake of it. It is always in full abundance. And notice something fascinating. And this is something I just find interesting. That on both sides of the river of grace is the singular tree of life. That's fascinating. It's one tree. Yet it's it's being envisioned as being planted on both sides of the river of grace. 
And I've thought about what that is and why that looks like that. And the more that I began to think about that, in fact, that it bears 12 fruits and that it yields out of once, it yields once a month, which basically how many months are there in a year? There's 12 months, even in the lunar calendar. There's 12 months. So in other words, to all of God's people, the 12 fruit, and at all times, the producing once a month, this blessing is available to all God's people. There's no cutting off. And the fact that it is on both sides of the rivers of grace, to me is a picture that all of God's saints, old and new, are there gathered. Those saints that were on the old covenant side of the river of grace and the saints on the new are forever there gathered, nurtured by the same tree. Not a different one. The same one. All of God's people, old and new, which is separated by the river of grace, which was launched forward by the cross of Calvary, which is the tree of life. What is it that we drink from? We drink from the cross. Jesus took the tree of death and turned it into the tree of life. The tree, in order for us to, for man to be able to partake of the tree of life again, man would have had to die. So Jesus took the tree of death, the cross, and He made it a tree of life where everyone who comes and feasts and drinks at that, that tree, that cross, will forever be saved and forever nourished. And that becomes the bridge of the old and the new covenant saints together. And yet they are nurtured by the same tree. There is one tree, one vine, one olive branch. Right? You see that throughout Scripture. All of it. There's one. Who is it? It is Christ. And we are all nourished by Him. We see this in Ezekiel 47, that same picture. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. But notice, Revelation says there's just one tree. And the picture there is not, this is once again, not talking about a new creation where there's just one big tree where everyone looks at. No, this is symbolic. The one tree that nourishes both the nations and, and, and the people of God is Christ. He is the one that, that we are all united in, all grafted in. And if you're not grafted into Him, you're cut off and cast away. The recipients of the blessing, the twelve fruits, are all of God's people who are forever blessed by the nourishment produced by the sacrifice of Christ on the tree. The con continuity of this blessing, every month it produces its fruit, is merely the picture that it is unending. This is perpetual blessing. It is continuous, never ending. The blessings are always and forever in Christ. And the outcome of the blessing, for the healing of the nations, this is not to say we've already seen there will be no pain and no suffering. What this is simply saying is that because the tree forever remains in bloom, there is never a time where there is not healing. There is never a time where there is no pain or suffering. I mean, there, excuse me, there's never a time where the pain or suffering will ever return. The nations, the people of God are forever healed, forever kept, forever protected, forever purified, forever 
made whole by Christ. This is the eternal blessing that awaits us. This paradise is both the blessed, the place of eternal blessing, it is the place of eternal life, and it is also the place of eternal worship. Look at verse 3. We are told no longer will there be anything accursed, but, in the, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They'll worship Him. It's important that it says that there's nothing accursed there first, right? One, as we've already talked about, that there's no sin. There's nothing, right, that can cause us to stumble out of Eden or or to lose this paradise again. But even more so, when it says that there's nothing accursed there, what that tells us then is that there will never be anything that limits our capacity to worship again. What is the supreme limiting factor for all of humanity's worship? It's sin. It's sin. Even when you're trying to pray, how many times do your thoughts slip away? Even when you're trying to read your Bible, how many distractions come up? Even when you're trying to walk the walk of faith, how many times do you feel yourself getting angry and frustrated and slipping over your feet, right? That's, what, that's the supreme thing that's keeping you from being able to live in nothing but a perpetual life of worship is your own flesh and the sin around you. And so when that's removed, that means there is nothing that will ever get in your way of worship. And your worship here, when it talks about and they will worship Him, that's not just like all we're ever going to be doing is just sing and pray because that's what we think worship is. No. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31? Whether you eat or drink, do it unto the glory of God. In other words, every action that we do in the age to come, harvesting the glorious provision of the Lord, singing together, uh, working and tilling together, keeping together, praising Him together, every bit of it will be worship. Why? Because it will be done with Him in mind. Every bit of it will be done with Him in mind. Every bit of it will be done with a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving and praise. And nothing will ever limit it. That's what I mean by the freedom of worship. Why did God tell Moses, I've got to get them out of Egypt? What was the whole purpose? I will take them out of Egypt so that they can go worship me. We see what they did with sin. They worshiped an idol. But not us. Why? Because anything, this this idol-making factory we call a heart, will be so purified by that river of living water, the Holy Spirit, that every thought, every deed, every action, every word, continually will only be one of perfect worship. It'll only be one of perfect worship. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 11 And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And when you know you're secure from ever slipping away, there will only be perfect obedience for all glory. There will only be perfect gratitude for all glory. There will only be perfect praise for all glory. There will never be a time that our devotion towards the Lord, towards the Lamb, will ever be divided. It will be all there. 
And I don't care how much you love Jesus, you do not know what it is to have 1,000% allegiance. To have a heart that never carries you away towards a wrong thinking or doing. You just don't. But you will then. You will then. And you will worship like no other. And, the, and you will be able to worship one thing and one thing alone. And that is God and the Lamb. That is the object of worship. And this is what I talked about at the beginning. Today's Palm Sunday. And you see, as the Lord rides into Jerusalem, of all places, there, them laying palm branches, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. It is shouts of praise and celebration over the fact that the King has come. But look at this picture that we've already seen that John gave us about what glory will be like in our praise. It will be an eternal Palm Sunday. Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 15 and 17 of Revelation 7. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That was back in Revelation 7. It's the same picture. That's what I've been telling you guys throughout this whole study. It's these same pictures over and over again. We're just looking at the final one. But this is what it will be. It will be a place of eternal worship where there is no divided devotion. Nothing that pulls us away. Perfectly freed to worship God and the Lamb. Nothing will change that. Everything we do will be to His glory. Because everything that we do, the only thing we will see is His glory. He will be worshipped for eternity. And that is because not only is this the place of eternal worship, it is the place of eternal intimacy. Verse 4, they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. They will see His face. Take that in for a second. You will see His face. You will see the glorified King of, of, of the ages. The Creator. In all of His glory, you'll see His face. The reward of faith is the vision of God. For now, you do not see. So you live by faith. But the outcome of your faith is that you will see. The reward of faith is the vision of God. And the vision of God is the highest possible good which men can receive. You do realize that since the fall and man being cast out the garden, 
Every vision of God given to man since has had to come through a mediator. Has had to come through mediation. Whether it was through the prophets or through angels, through theophanies, like fire and clouds, through Moses being hid in the cleft of rock just so he could barely get the back of God passed by him without coming down looking like a meteor himself shining. Through the prophets. And even when the Son of God came Himself, He had to veil Himself in human flesh. Because as Ezekiel says, to look upon God and His glory in our sinful state would be to die. You would die. You could not see God in your sinful flesh remaining as you are. You would immediately be eviscerated by the power of His glory. You would just die. Which is why even when men throughout the Scriptures get a small glimpse of His glory, all they want to do is die. Isaiah, woe unto me! Peter, depart from me! Because they know to be in the presence of holy God in sinful form is to be dead. And yet here, there is no rock that we are hidden in because the rock we are hidden in has brought us into glory. And now we see His face. He is no longer a rock which hides us from the, 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 the wrath of God. He is now the one who brings us in and we see His face as the Son of God. And this is the intimate reality of God. No longer is He something out there. No longer is He the, 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 the one that we trust and believe and we know is true and one day we will see. No, now it is forever. Now we no longer walk by faith. We walk by with his face. And this is exactly what Jesus teaches throughout and the New Testament teaches throughout. Matthew 5:8 Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How? Cuz this has been purified. And how does that get purified? Through that river of eternal water of life called the Holy Spirit, which perfectly purifies it. So that we never again have to worry about that side of God being taken away from us. Because nothing but purity is being pumped into us day and night through the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that great love chapter. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, talking about the age to come, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. This is remarkable. You will see Him. And this is a constant assurance for you. You'll never have to go, I wonder if God's with us. That's all you'll see. You'll see Him everywhere. You will see Him around you. You will see Him in you. And you will see Him in each and every one of your fellow saints. They're clear as glass. You'll just see the reflection of His glory in all of us. 
This is remarkable. And this is the constant assurance of heaven. That He walks with me daily. That I behold His face. That I look into His eyes. That I see the eyes of the One who spoke me into creation. That I see the One who died for me on Calvary. That I behold His very face. And I don't see an angry, wrathful God. I see the most intimate, loving God. He says, I'll be with you forever. And you'll never be lost again. And that's what I mean by intimacy. When John says, we will know Him. We will know Him. 1 Corinthians 13, it will be fully known. We will know God in a way unlike never before. Now here's the reality. We will know Him as much as a created being can know Him. And the reality that we need to understand is that God will forever be an incomprehensible mystery even in our glorified state. And that will be the perpetual reason for our worship. We will never figure out God, but we will know Him with an intimacy none like any other. That is what it is to behold your God. This is the greatest gift to man to be able to see God. And that is the gift of faith. That though you now walk by faith, you will walk by sight in the glory to come. And you have a constant of security. It is His seal that is upon your head. In other words, this mind that would seek to challenge God, that would seek to pull your heart away from Him, is forever sealed. It will be forever locked in on Him. My thoughts will only be towards the one I was created to know. Man was created to know God and Him alone. And never again will it pull me away, pull this mind away, from anything but Him and His glory. Every part of us will know Him with an intimacy and a joy and a peace like no other. We will see Him face to face. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see when I look upon His face, the one who saved me by His grace. I'll look in His face. That's real. That's biblical. You will see Him. And there's no words other than that. There's no words to describe it. There are no words to try to, to, to paint a picture would just be wicked. You'll just see Him. And every fear Every sorrow, everything that once brought hopelessness will evaporate in an instant by the mere radiance of His glory. And that is why it is also a place of eternal illumination. We see this at the beginning of verse 5. And night will be no more, and they will need 
No light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. The Lord God will be their light. Not only the light around us, but the light within us and the light upon us. It will all be His glory. His radiance will be so immense, His power so immense, that everything will shine like the light of 10 billion suns colliding. Psalm 36, 7 and 9. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life and in your light do we see light. In your light do we see light. Psalm 72 verse 19. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. That's what this picture is. The whole new heavens and earth have collided and all of it's filled with His glory. Daniel chapter 12 verse 3. This tells us about us. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Literally, we will permeate with the light of His glory. That's why C.S. Lewis talks about that, 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 that brother or sister in the Lord that bugs you at the church. If you were to see them and what the final state of them would be, you'd be tempted to worship them. Because His glory will so permeate them. As it will you as well. Matthew chapter 13 verse 42 through 43. Jesus delivers this on His Olivet Discourse. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out His kingdom all ca- and all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be a weeping and gnashing teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. We'll shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. And you know what the light is? It's His. It's just, we're like mirrors. Everything that shines on us is just nothing but a reflection of Him. It's all His light. So what does this mean? The fact that we know at first it means that there's nothing hidden. There is nothing about you that's in the dark. That's another reason why we're seen as, as clear or transparent. There's no longer this flesh which seeks to conceal wickedness. No. Everything's transparent. Because there's nothing to hide anymore. There's no darkness, no sin, no wickedness, no shame. There's nothing in the dark, nothing hidden which could sneak up, no serpents which might crawl out to tempt us away. Not only is there nothing hidden, there's no distractions. Notice, there's no sun or moon. No other lights out there. Nothing that would might distract our attention away to a created thing and worship it. Anything that might want to draw our eyes away from the glory of the Lord will be gone. There will be no distractions. 
And thirdly, there will be perfect clarity. You will be able to see and behold your God and see the realities of His creation and His purposes in a way that right now you can't fully grasp. In the Bible, right, when we're reading our Bibles and the Holy Spirit is at work in us, which is why the Holy Spirit is a necessary prerequisite for understanding the Bible, that moment of those aha moments where Scripture just collides and we see that moment of, wow, I see it before and I've never seen that before. That, that's called illumination. But that was what it would be. Think, think about those joy. Think about the joy of those moments in your life where the light bulb just went off. Bam. And the Word of God just opened up. And you're like, wow, I see it. I see it. And you want to celebrate because I, I see it. That's what glory will be forever. I see it. I see it. And it's more wonderful than I ever thought. It's better than I ever imagined. It's better than I ever imagined. It will be perfect clarity. I will behold my God and my purpose and my meaning and all those around me with a clarity unlike never before. Perfect illumination from the Spirit which flows through us. The light of His glory will be upon us, within us, and around us. And our eyes will be forever set upon it. And Moses' prayer, Lord, show me your glory, will no longer be a prayer. It will be a daily practice. His glory will be everywhere. And then finally... It will be the place of eternal purpose. And they will reign forever and ever. My friends, anybody who wants to portray heaven as us sitting in clouds, strumming harps, twiddling our thumbs, I'm not shocked at all when they think, oh, that thing's boring after a while. That would be. If we were just a bunch of fat cherubs floating around playing flutes, But that is not what it is. Remember, back in Genesis 2, Adam was given a mandate to work and keep the garden. Work came before the fall. And it was joyful and wonderful. It's why men today still find purpose and meaning and value in their work. So that's what we were created for. To give Him glory through our work. And to enjoy Him in our work for all eternity. And I have no idea. So I'm not even going to tell you. I don't know what it's going to look like. I have no idea. I just know heaven and this earth will be fully collided. It will be massive because it will include billions if not trillions of people at that point that have been brought in by grace fully glorified and they will forever be given the task of shared dominion. With the greater Adam, Jesus Christ. And we will reign with him forever. So often people say, Well, who are we reigning over? You're missing the point. You're not reigning over, you're reigning with Christ. The shared dominion of a new creation of a greater Adam. 
we are his offspring who are doing what the first Adam lost for his offspring. Forever reaping the harvest of an eternal bounty of his blessings. And it will be joyful and wonderful. We will gather fruits from vineyards that when we pluck, I can, I, I can almost picture we pluck and it's almost as if the, the vine literally regrows in a moment. Our taste buds perfectly sensatious. And there's nothing that, that, that loses the taste. Fruit sweeter than anything. Milk and honey flowing with perfection. Our bones strong and our, our muscles no groaning or aching. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Every sinew, every synapse, everything perfectly put into place to serve our Lord in a new creation where every moment of our work will be one of nothing but joy and delight. Oh, it will be wonderful. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11-13, through 13, The saying is trustworthy. For if we have di- died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, yet He remains faithful. For He cannot deny Himself. If we endure, we will reign with Him. Our full created purpose to know and glorify God and enjoy Him forever will be forever met in paradise restored. We will know exactly what it means to enjoy God and glorify Him without any division. Everything we do will be a work of praise. Every moment will be one of perfect peace. Every second, one of utter delight. Every moment, one of absolute clarity. Every day, one of perfect intimacy with our God. This is what paradise will be. And if you have looked upon Jesus Christ as your Savior, repented of your sin, and cast yourself wholly upon Him as Lord of your life and Savior for your sin and King over your eternity, then the whisper He gives to every dying saint is, you will be with me in paradise today. Just like the thief on the cross. And the paradise that He has prepared for us we have seen put right before our eyes today. This is what He will do. This is why He came. 
This is why this Friday he died. And this is why the Sunday he raises to life. He does this all to get us to here. Paradise restored. And so here is our closing takeaways from this. The end is better than the beginning. And the first creation, Eden, was just a small portion of the earth. It wasn't all the earth. The Lord planted a garden in the east called Eden and placed man in it. So it wasn't all the earth. That was Eden. But now it will be. There won't be a single portion of God's new creation that isn't Eden. That isn't paradise. Because there's nothing that can come from outside of it that would hurt anybody there. It's all Eden. It's all heaven and earth perfectly mutually combined. Man dwelling in perfection on earth, dwelling amongst angelic hosts, hearing mourning. And they can't think to what it would be to daily hear the songs of angelic hosts and to join in, them, join in with them to the God we will be in the presence with. The end will be better than the beginning because there's no hope, there's no even possibility of loss in this time around. Because we have an Adam who's already won and won't lose again. Secondly, we will be in perfect rest, but not idle. We're not going to be sitting on our hands in heaven. We're not going to be sitting on our hands in glory. We will be workers and servants whose every act is delight and joyful and celebratory and all to His glory and all for, his, and all for our enjoyment of Him. We will be in perfect rest, but we will not be idle in glory. Three, faith and hope shall cease, but love will never end. There will be no need for faith. We see. It will be always before us, face to face. There will be no need for hope. We have everything. We have everything we need. There will never be, it'll be better tomorrow. It's always better. It's infinitely better. Every moment, nothing else to look forward to but the, na- but the very moment that we're in. It will be a, we will live in an eternal state of the present. Think about that. We will live in the eternal state of the present. You know, God says, I am that I am. Not I was, now I am, or I will be. I am that I am. He always is at all times, perfect, good, holy, wonderful. And that is the state we will enter into. We will never think of, I wonder what tomorrow will be like. We'll never think of, man, yesterday was great. We will always think of, oh, how wonderful it is now. How wonderful it is now. An eternal state of the present. If that blows your mind, I I can't explain it. It's just, that's what it will be. The eternal state of the present. But love, that never ends. The love that permeates for God and for our brothers and sisters in glory will be perfected and it will reign forever. That's 1 Corinthians 13. Faith and hope will cease when when we get to this place. But our love for Him and for each other will only grow in perfect, immense, eternal love. Agape love. And then lastly, and this is the greatest news of all, paradise will never be lost again. You won't mess it up. Thank you, Jesus. 
Because if I could, I would. But I won't be able to. Perfectly sealed. Perfectly secured. Perfectly purified. Perfectly glorified. It will never be lost again. It will just be eternal paradise. Never to be lost. My friends, this is what the Lord of glory will do for us. This is what He's doing for us. This is what He did for us. Oh, what a God we serve. A God who set His affection on you in eternity past will love you forever into an eternity future. And that is the greatest news of all. Chosen. Saved. Justified. Sanctified. Glorified. Secured. Forever. And it will never be lost. Paradise. Restored. Paradise. Forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much, God, for this great news that you give us at the end of the word. When we can be discouraged in life and the the frailties of our own flesh and the foolishness of this world, God, I pray that you would constantly just turn our hearts back to this this section of your, your scriptures, God. That we would constantly go to this to see what is in store for all those who faithfully live for you who daily press into you, who have surrendered their life to you, who have submitted to you. This is what's in store. So help us walk by faith when we struggle to see, knowing that one day all we will do is see. Help us when we feel you are at a distance, knowing that one day you will forever be upon us and within us and around us. Help us seek to drink from your life-giving substance, your life-giving water, knowing that one day we will forever be, we will forever be quenched by the immense, pure, perfect, ever-flowing river of grace that is poured into us by the Holy Spirit. God, help us not be turned away to these the, the fruits of the world which seek to to, to go after the lust of our flesh, but forever cause us to be satisfied on the fruit that you alone give because it is by your fruit and the tree of life that we will forever be blessed and nourished and healed. And Lord, help us be faithful in living in such a way that every act of our life, our work, our relationships, our words, are sought to be glorifying to You. Our acts of worship to You. Let's start now, God, the reality of what will be forever. You are so good, God. You are so gracious. We do not deserve any of Your blessings, only Your judgment. And yet, as we look upon the glorious realities of what you have prepared for your people, all we can do is say our cup overflows. 
So we thank You for Your perfect redemption, for Your covenant faithfulness, for Your everlasting love. And we look forward and long to the day that we will behold Your perfect face in glory. And for that we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. In Your name we pray. Amen.